Welcome to Huddle Home Office. I'm Mark Legere. And I'm Sharice Latson. Hello, Sharice. Hey, Mark. How's it going? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Though I did have to come in uh, for a meeting this morning, Sharice. I'm actually technically on my vacation here. You, yeah, it's your. It's finally your turn. I know. I know. But it's okay because I, you know, I got to talk to you, so I can interrupt my vacation for for a day for a chance to talk to Sharice. Um, absolutely. Um, do you have any exciting plans for the next two weeks while you're gone? Well, you know, nothing, nothing uh, as exotic as your trip to Halifax. I, I must okay. confess. Um, and, you know, and, and in the Atlantic times, of the Atlantic bubble, Sharice, Halifax does become exotic. <laughs> very true. Very true. <laughs> no, I'm, and so for me, I think um, I'm just uh, out at uh, our family, our family cottage uh, in an area called Browns Flat, which is a small town, um, about 30 minutes outside St. John uh, on the St. John River. So it's a great place. And actually, uh, I've spent the better part of a month there too, as you know, uh, it, with it as my home office. Uh, right. As we try to, to take care of our kids and uh, and get our work done at the same time, so but I'm I'm excited to be able to like uh, tune out for the next week and a half and and uh, just enjoy uh, being uh, being on the river. You deserve it. You deserve it. And I'll be holding down the fort here at Huddle HQ. And uh, <laughs> excellent. I'll make sure nothing goes, uh, you know, descends into chaos and all that. <laughs> Try to. (laughs) (laughs) As I'm sure it won't. Things will actually just run more smoothly for the next week and a half, Sharice. We know the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Ask the rest of the team that when you return. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, um, Sharice, last week we, uh, you know, we we talked to Rob Moyer and Wendy Keats. And a lot of that conversation, you know, had to do with kind of the, the present and future workforce, you know, how we've pivoted. Uh, a bit through COVID-19 and had a lot of us, you know, working remotely, working from home and a lot of us moving back into the office, uh, you know, but still to a certain degree adjusting, right. And, mm-hmm. and looking at, you know, how the future workforce might be more based out of home or, or remote locations that aren't, you know, that physical brick and mortar office. And Sharice, uh, this week on the podcast, I talked to uh, probably the be- the best known uh, work from home person, I'd say in Atlantic Canada, uh, and I didn't actually discover that until I until I spoke to him uh, recently. And that's you know former premier uh, and former Canadian ambassador to the U.S. Uh, Frank McKenna. Uh, and uh, I thought I was getting uh, Mr. McKenna at um, you know an office in in downtown Toronto on Bay Street, and actually I was getting him out of his home in Caplet. Oh wow! So he's in so he's in the he's in the province right yeah. now. He's been in New Brunswick the whole time, and and I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. And so uh, Frank and I connected and did our first, uh, you know, huddle Zoom interview, and it went well because we've been doing the podcast mainly over and the like the audio platform you and I are using right now. But I, I talked to Frank by Zoom, and he was uh, at his home office in in Capelay. And if you can believe it, Sharice, one of the things that he told me because I mean, with with Frank. Uh, we just know that, you know, that he just hustles all the time. He's, he's, he's a workhorse and, um, you know, both, you know, between, uh, his work at TD, but he's also a great advocate, continues to be a great advocate for growing, um, you know, the New Brunswick, uh, and the regional economy. And we think of him as a workhorse. And one of the things that he actually confessed to me during the interview that we did is one of the tricks he's learned from, about what things he's learned about working from home is that he can, he can work seven days. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, I thought you already worked seven days. 
<laughs> so, so Frank has, he's actually sped things up a bit. He's actually been able to work a little bit harder from, from, uh, Capelet, he says in a little uh, longer hours, uh, if you can believe it. Uh, and it's actually one of the, the interesting insights out of the interview that I did with him because, uh, the conversation that I had with him was a lot around, uh, so where, where does New Brunswick and, and where does Atlantic, Atlantic Canada go from here uh, as we start to rebuild the economy um, going forward? What are our strengths uh, and, you know, what are the things that we need to work on? And I won't give everything away in this intro, Sharice, because I know everybody want, would rather hear that directly from uh, Frank himself. Uh, but one of the things that we talked about is, so, you know, we've learned a lot about you know, uh, efficiency and, you know, the opportunity that, that uh, working remotely or working from home could have for the future economy. So, um, I thought what better person to speak with about that than, uh, as I said before, our mo- most well-known, uh, New Brunswick are working from home himself. No, that this sounds like it's going to be a great conversation. So why don't we get into it? Definitely. Oh, and before we do, Sharice, uh, I probably should mention mention a couple things because uh, one of the things that uh, that comes up, and this is a bit of a teaser, every year uh, Frank does uh, a a big event in Fox Harbor, Nova Scotia, every summer, and it's a one day event that uh, brings in people from all over North America, and 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 Frank, uh, his idea around this event in Fox Harbor is to generate discussion and to generate opportunity for Atlanta, Canada. And he, he casts far and wide for the kinds of people he brings in here to speak and a network. And it's not just sort of the regional players. It's also been people like, you know, former president Bill Clinton, uh, from the U S and it's been, uh, you know, the former prime minister, uh, from great Britain, uh, Tony Blair. Right. So he, he really brings in some heavy hitters to, uh, you know, through his vast networks that he has uh, to have like a, a really good, um, you know, one day, one day event centered around, um, you know, networking. And obviously there's a social component to this. It's a, a golf resort, but also they talk a lot about kind of the, the, he tries to get them talking about the future Atlantic and, and, and seeing opportunity there. So we did talk about that and he had some more great guests this year. But what's interesting about this Sharice is it was held uh, virtually this year. So he has some interesting insights on some of the positives of actually doing a, a virtual event like that, that's heavily reliant on that person to person networking. And we also talked about, um, this is, is a conversation, uh, an issue that, uh, that Frank knows a lot about, which is, uh, the energy industry, uh, both fossil fuel and, uh, and renewables. Um, but he's all long been a strong advocate for, uh, continuing to develop the fossil fuel industry here. And so we do talk about that. Um, but we did have uh, that conversation, Sharice, before, uh, just so listeners realize uh, as we're, as they're listening to my conversation with him, uh, that we had that conversation before the Irving Oil uh, layoffs of the 250 people who uh, are losing their jobs at Irving Oil um, right. that was announced um, a couple of weeks ago. So those are just little uh, FYIs uh, before we get in, I get into this conversation with Frank. Uh, but let's uh, let's get to it. Let's do it. Well, thanks very much. It's good to, good to be able to chat with you. Yeah, it's quite a world we live in. You never <laughs> you never know who's going to pop up on the radar screen. <laughs> yeah. So uh, where are you now? Uh, I'm in Capilay. You're in Capilay. Oh, you're in New Brunswick. Nice. Uh, yeah. No, we've been here ever since COVID hit. Uh, if you have to ride out a storm, this is the place to do it. Okay. All right. Oh no, I didn't realize that. I thought you were. Uh, I thought you were holed up in Toronto. It's good to know we have you in New Brunswick. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've been here all the way through. So, what have been things uh, been like uh, for you in Capelle? Like, what does your life look like? Well, it's amazing. I, I'm probably more productive than I've ever been in my life. Uh, I've got uh, so there are fewer physical meetings, but uh, I've got a huge number of virtual meetings uh, that go on uh, every day, and and there are no restrictions on hours now. So you literally work seven days a week. Um, but I also get a chance to uh, go out on my bike. Um, I get a chance to play golf. I want. We have a tennis court. Uh, we swim in the ocean. So I, I get all the recreational activities uh, plus a very efficient work environment. It's really been a good experience. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's great. I mean, it's it's been a lot the same. I'm I'm now back uh, back in the office uh, part time, but I've also been working out of home and then. Most recently, working out of our cottage up in the kind of Oak Point area yeah. on the on the old road, Fredericton. Yeah, so you know it's great to be able to do that. I each year I host a major event uh, called Fox Harbor. We have a couple of hundred dignitaries in, and and so on. This year we did it virtually this week, and it was the best we've ever done. We had uh, Wayne Gretzky was on, Bill Clinton, Christian Freeland, Deep Baines. We had. Uh, uh, seven ambassadors, half a dozen cabinet ministers. Uh, we have people from Beijing to Kabul to London to Geneva, all over the world, 200 people on, and with everybody coming in doing their piece. And then Tom Friedman was the guest um, who did a speech and, and virtual Q&A. So, so it's, you know, I'm just learning all kinds of things about how you can get stuff done in this environment. Right. So with an event like Fox Harbor, so you said that it went better, like, because obviously that's a huge, huge social event. Um, how, how did it work differently and what was better about it? Yeah, well, I only say it worked better in that we probably have more people because people who couldn't physically have made the event in the past were able to this time. So we had people on that we just never have been able to uh, to attract because it's about a three day trip. Um, so that part of it was better. Um, and so we had more uh, high profile guests uh, speaking and that would be better. What wasn't better is the social part of it. And the fact is, Mark, we can't take that out of our life. It's important and we've got to keep doing it. And for people to spend a whole day together and break bread together and drink wine together and so on, we, we miss a lot in not being able to do that. So you've been in, in Capillet, uh throughout you know the the pandemic so far like what what are some of your impressions of you know how we've managed things and and how things look coming out of this as we start to open up the economy well i'm very grateful to be living in canada and, and particularly grateful to be living in and i think it, as much as anything it um uh it it speaks to our culture we we respect each other we're in a province like New Brunswick, uh, in the Maritimes, in fact, we're related to a lot of the people here and we're neighbors to a lot of the people here. We don't want to hurt our neighbor or our family member. So we're respectful when it comes to, uh, uh, to physical distancing and, uh, and following the rules. And the other thing is a country overall, we're rules followers. We, we, I think our leaders have been strong, but our followers have been strong as well. And people have been respectful of the role of government. Some countries are constantly resisting uh, government in their lives. In Canada, generally speaking, we accept it's a legitimate uh, uh, it's a legitimate function. So uh, I think it, uh, during the pandemic, it's worked well. 
has it changed at all the way you see, you know, New Brunswick and, and, and Nova Scotia and the rest of the Maritimes uh, growing economically in terms of the economy coming out of this? Well, that's an interesting question, and, 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 and I don't hear much discussion, but I happen to think that uh, it's opened up a couple of huge opportunities for us that wouldn't have been as readily apparent before. People are now all over the world working remotely. Uh, I don't think uh, working uh, remotely is a permanent feature for everybody under every circumstance, but I think it's going to be part of our lifestyle in some respects going forward uh, for a long time, in fact, forever. So that's changed the whole nature of work. And all of a sudden, jurisdictions like ours here that are remote, remote from the towers of New York and Toronto, um, provide opportunities for people to live uh, remotely and work in challenging uh, occupations. That's new. We, we've never really gone to the extent we have before. In Moncton, we've got a finance uh, back office for TV, which is working beautifully, but most of the people aren't physically located there during the pandemic. They're located in their communities and their homes. So we allow people to have the enviable quality of life that comes from living here in Atlantic Canada, which includes, uh, I think, neighborliness, uh, mutual respect, but also very low cost uh, housing and generally low cost of living, uh, access beautiful cottage properties uh, uh, on various coasts and lakes and rivers. So it gives people uh, the chance to have an enviable quality of life and work at challenging professions. Uh, so that is a huge win for places like ours. In order to supplement it, we need to make sure we've got the best in class in the world, high speed uh, broadband so that people can do whatever they want from the region. Secondly, I believe at a time when the rest of the world in many ways is becoming increasingly protectionist, basically the United States, but also China and Hong Kong, uh, we have a chance to open our doors to really skilled entrepreneurial immigrants from all over the world. I think we should have to welcome that out to people from Hong Kong who are just notorious for their work habits, but also for people that are shunning the United States now because they don't feel welcome. In fact, can't even get visas to come to the United States. We have world-class universities uh, across our region. We can populate them with some of the best students on the planet. And we've got uh, environments where entrepreneurs can come in and start businesses or grow businesses in a safe place, a place where they know that they're going to be physically uh, safe. And uh, so these are massive opportunities for us at present time. Right. I know the, the government of New Brunswick, um, you know, a couple of years ago, made, made efforts to start trying to attract uh, some of the immigrants who, who would have settled in the United States, but started to encounter visa issues, which have just become more pronounced now, right, in the last, last week in the United States. Do you see that as, as, a, as a realistic opportunity for New Brunswick and Nova Scotia in terms of attracting some of that workforce that would otherwise, or and entrepreneurs who otherwise would have gone to, to the U.S.? Yeah, it's a huge, huge opportunity. Uh, our quality of life sets us apart from a lot of places. The fact there's virtually no COVID throughout our region and that we're able to attack it very quickly when it takes place and, and that people follow the rules, that can be very attractive to people who feel threatened. If you're working in Houston right now, you have to feel threatened. 
if you're in Miami right now, you have to feel threatened because people around you are not following the rules and your leadership is not uh, making the appropriate choices. Uh, here, you can, you can have the most challenging job in the world uh, while being in a safe environment. So I think, the, I think this presents a wonderful opportunity for us. The other thing that uh, has opened up a gaping hole in, uh, I think, in, in the kind of national security aspiration of every government is food security uh, during the pandemic. But if you look across New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, we've got extraordinary amounts of undeveloped arable land and opportunity. We have to make sure we do it at, at a cutting edge level, but I take, for example, aquaculture. Uh, we have world-class aquaculture. Charlotte County, New Brunswick's got some of the, it's headquartering one of the largest aquaculture companies in the world. Uh, and, 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 and aquaculture is spreading its wings across the region. Uh, Oxford Foods, John Bragg, is now moving his blueberry operations up in the Acadian Peninsula. At some point, blueberries will become as big as potatoes in New Brunswick and will create as much economic opportunity uh, for those communities around the Acadian Peninsula. We have an Indian farmer who's come here and is growing apples in Kent County, and he thinks it'll be one of the largest apple-growing regions in the entire world. Uh, wine growing uh, in the Annapolis Valley, you look across our region, and the amount of opportunity is incredible. Uh, and at a time when food security matters, we have opportunities to grow food here. Potatoes is obvious one. Prince Edward Island and, and New Brunswick is a prime area for growing potatoes. What we have to keep doing is investing in the technology that allows us to have the lowest cost of production, the highest quality anywhere on the planet. And we have a lot of uh, research uh, backing that up at the present time. Do you think we face some, some challenges around uh, the, the immigrant workforce and, and how quickly we're going to be able to return to levels where we were before? Because we were starting to make great gains right before the pandemic hit. Yes. Uh, the Atlantic Immigration Pilot has probably been the most innovative federal program because innovative and federal is almost an oxymoron. Uh, it doesn't go together all that well. But it's one of the best federal programs we've seen for a region, and all of the provinces were exploiting it enormously. Just look at Prince Edward Island. Prince Edward Island has been showing growth rates that are leading Canada, but amongst the leading growth rates in the world. A lot of it based on immigration and, and a strong agri-food sector and so on. Um, but our whole region was benefiting enormously. I think it'll be up to us a little bit. We need to keep the doors open. We need to figure out how we can bring uh, workers here. Temporary foreign workers who often migrate into full-time workers. I saw an ad, not an ad, a, story, a really nice story just a couple of weeks ago in the Moncton Times about a Filipino couple who came here as temporary foreign workers then ended up becoming permanent residents, are now opening up restaurants in Moncton uh, and in uh, Shedia. We need more, lots more of, pe of people like that. And uh, in fact, I'd say the need has never been greater to have all of these entrepreneurs in our midst. So governments have to, what are their way to clear the roadblocks to getting immigrants in at the present time? Right. Uh I wanted to raise the uh, the energy issue with you, especially because I'd love to get a sense of how your thinking's kind of evolved on that. And is especially in terms of, um, you know, we have a, a tanker making its way um, to St. John uh, through quite a circuitous route. 
to get here and, and sort of your impressions on the economics of, of that and, and the path, kind of the path forward uh, for you know, not just fossil fuel development, but other energy development. Yeah, I've had some peripheral involvement in that. I'm, I'm really excited about it. And I'm excited as well about the rationalization taking place in the North Atlantic uh, refining business. Uh, the Irvings now have a refinery in Ireland and, and uh, the Come By Chance refinery in Newfoundland Labrador and the one, of course, in St. John. And the way they integrate those together is, is going to be really important for our export opportunities and for supporting uh, Hibernia and indigenous uh, fuel extraction, and the economy overall. But I found it really exciting that they've been able to make the economics work uh, by, by chartering large vessels that can transit the Panama Canal. And in some cases, pick up uh, other grades um, of, uh, of, of oil in the Gulf Coast uh, that, that allows them to blend it in uh, their refineries in Eastern Canada. It's, it's very exciting for us in the East, but it's very exciting as well for uh, energy security in Canada. I think that, we, I think that we're far too cavalier in Canada uh, about protecting our energy resource. Uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin once said, uh, you know the worth of water when the well runs dry. And it's true. We would know the worth of our energy security when we no longer have it. And in the East, we don't really have it at all. We're importing six, 700,000 barrels of oil a day from all around the world. Well, we shouldn't be doing that at a time when in Western Canada, we're exporting uh, massive quantities of, uh, of, of our, uh, our uh, oil and gas. So we've got to figure out uh, how to get that balance right, I think. And uh, uh, the, I think it's important that we use the world's best science in terms of the extraction of carbon-based resources. Uh, but that we also recognize they're going to have a long-term future and that they can create uh, ec the economic wealth that can provide opportunities for so many other Canadians in so many other ways. Now, I know obviously um, the, the pipeline issue has been been huge here and it's died down recently. And there's also the issue of, of transporting that oil by, by rail. Um, and, 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 you know, in terms of your advocacy and your involvement in this issue, uh, had you had uh, had this uh, idea of shipping the oil down through the Panama Canal and up had that been explored like is is this something that that's being done just as a, a stopgap just to try and 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 make this viable or like is is this a a path forward or is this another bridge to let's eventually get a pipeline built well I think it's the latter when we were working on the pipeline file we had uh, always uh, known that the cost advantage of getting, um, of getting fuel into a pipeline to Eastern Canada uh, and exporting to India or even the Gulf states uh, made sense. Uh, and it made sense over any other form of, of distribution of the, of, of the oil. So we knew those economics would work. Um, we didn't appreciate, uh, I believe, that the economics might also work for actually shipping oil uh, in uh, large containers, container vessels or large uh, tanker vessels through the Panama Canal. Uh, because um, there were a few different ideas that have come together uh, on that that I guess we just hadn't thought through because we were intent on getting the pipeline built. And the only reason the pipeline isn't built is because of politics. 
the fact is Quebec is standing in the way. The fact is Quebec is getting enormous amounts of oil now uh, up the St. Lawrence River by tanker from despotic states all over the world, but they refuse to acknowledge that fact, but they, they're perfectly content on blocking Western oil from coming east. So that's just reality. It's the reality of Canada. But I don't think what we appreciated when we were doing our work on this was the difference in economics larger vessels would make. And uh, that only comes about through certain permitting that the government of Canada is prepared to do. Also, that the Trans-Canada Mountain, uh, Mountain Pipeline is uh, it, it's in service now, but it is so far advanced, it will uh, be finished, and that'll double the capacity of that. So there's lots of Western oil going to be transiting uh, on the Pacific Ocean that you can pick up. And thirdly, the possibility of, uh, of picking up oil in the Gulf Coast of different blends that would help make the economics work even better. So there's about three ideas that have come together there. And maybe the fourth idea is that oil uh, in the West would become very cheap as a result of the price wars taking place between Saudi Arabia, Russia, and, and the shale producers. So there's probably three or four things that have come together to make this viable. Whether that's viable in the longer term or simply a short-term opportunity, we don't know. But at this stage, I really commend uh, the Irvings in particular who have said they they're doing this in part as, as, as a national obligation to uh, support the country. Is, is, is it something that possibly leaves open the possibility for a pipeline? I know the last time we spoke, you know, you, that, that issue was, was dead. Um, does this leave that debate open again? Well, I think it's all, it always should be open because it just is common sense. Uh, uh, and it could be a utility corridor that carries... It could be fiber optic cables. It could be hydro lines. It could be uh, it could be natural gas, which is more popular than oil. It could be all of those things. Uh, when you think about it, as a country, we really our strength has been in some of our national uh, our national networks: Trans Canada Highway, now the Trans Canada Trail, the railroad system from coast to coast. We really should have a utility corridor that goes from coast to coast. I don't think anybody's got the political guts to do it uh, at the present time, and uh, I, don't, I don't know what it would take to create that political environment where it would take place. I, I think it's lamentable that Quebec feel they can block uh, a project for no other reason than that it doesn't uh, benefit them uh, to the same extent it might benefit the West and the East. I don't think that's very uh, magnanimous, uh, but but that's reality, and right now I don't think there's any political will to overcome that. The environmental, look, pipelines now are 99.9% safe. Uh, the integrity of pipelines is, is extraordinarily high. Uh, so it's more a, a, a social choice. As the Premier of Quebec, uh, bluntly, honestly, and regrettably is saying, there's no social license to ship uh, oil through Quebec. You know, we could say there's no social license to ship hydropower coming from large dammed uh, uh, systems into the U.S. or New Brunswick either, but we aren't saying that. Mm -hmm. I'm simply saying they, they've made a decision and uh, they don't see the future of Canada and the future of Quebec being uh, equivalent. Do you see um, potentially large opportunities for renewable development and, and, and shifting that way from fossil fuel development? Always. I mean, that's always the transition. 
I'm, I'm chairman of Brookfield. We're the largest renewable producer in the world, and uh, we'll grow, keep growing exponentially. And our renewables are hydro and solar and wind, and we're going to keep growing that out. And the price points keep coming down. Uh, and I think the carbon-producing energy sector should be also investing in the renewables and 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 helping to make the transition. Absolutely, but it's going to be decades before renewables and, and maybe uh, longer than decades even before renewables become the major source of energy. Uh, I mean, every statistic shows that. And uh, so we just, we, what we have to do is continue to, to find balance, to, to extract oil and gas and using the strongest science on the planet so that we can decarbonize it and electrify uh, the process. And that's doable, we can do that. Uh, what we have to do is to stop fighting and start cooperating and figure out, okay, if we're going to have an energy mix of renewables and, and, and carbon products, how can we do it in the, wor in the world's leading uh, way, uh, respectful way? I can tell you, nobody in Saudi Arabia and Nigeria are thinking these thoughts at the present time. Yeah, but in Canada, we can and we should. Uh, but we'd rather fight than win sometimes on these issues. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, we're still um, in in the uh, you know in the midst of the, of struggling with these these debates, and and we have been around the pipeline issue for sure for a long time, and now in the midst of this conversation around shifting from fossil fuels to renewables. Um, and Mark, are you optimistic? I was going to say, in the meantime, we have dissipated national wealth to the tune of probably hundreds of billions of dollars by allowing the Americans to get. Uh, a large discount on our production, and all that money goes right into the pockets of Donald Trump and his supporters, whereas we could have hundreds of billions of dollars in Canada that could be used to expand health care, could get into pharma care, we could be paying our, our central workers uh, more, all kinds of things. We're just pissing away money that would do enormous good for the benefit of Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, are you optimistic that we're going to be able to resolve these issues and move, move forward? No, if anything, I, well, I, I'm always optimistic, but uh, the permitting process in Canada is getting tougher rather than easier. And, uh, in a way, we've got a bit of a two-speed economy. If you're in Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver, you can get anything done. All your knowledge industries are fine. Your subways can be built. It's massive high-rise office buildings can be built. But if you're in rural Canada, you can't get anything built. It, it's just a massive traffic jam. Very hard to get stuff done. Right. So we'd have to see a cultural shift in the way we see moving these kinds of projects forward to do that. Yeah, I think so. I, I think we have to recognize that uh, uh, massive wealth uh, is being dissipated in Canada that could be used to the advantage of all Canadians who make life better uh, and, and bring better science to the rest of the world and uh, and just create a, a, a you know Canada's a, a very good country but we need to constantly keep perfecting it and uh, and I don't think that we're living up to our potential at all right I'll, I'll leave uh, I'll leave you with one question because I, I appreciate the time that you've taken with me um, what, what do you see are the biggest opportunities for us going forward uh, well I think there's some obvious ones that come out of uh, uh, the, the pandemic that we're through, uh, agri-foods, uh, especially in our region, great potential. 
uh, the distributed work model where we work remotely, uh, all of that immigration would be huge. I think the technology side too, the value of that, adding value to everything. We've got to up our game. We've got good universities. We've got to make sure that our secondary school system is producing people that know how to code. Uh, we, we need we need more STEM programs. We need more uh, just more rigor in the in the system so that we're, that we're producing entrepreneurial, well-educated, techno technologically uh, sound graduates uh, who are going to be creating all of the new businesses uh, that that can uh, create huge opportunities for citizens to live here and stay here and love here. Um, you know, we all know we have the best place in the world to live. We just need more opportunities for our young people to be challenged. And uh, with this new world that we're in, I think we can create those. But it, it means we got to, you know, we have to up our game dramatically from where we are now. We have we have some hotspots, technology hotspots, and some great little companies. And you'd be surprised at the number of hundred job, hundred fifty job operations there are with uh, computer coders or technology people of various kinds we, we could be doubling tripling quadrupling that um, but we, we need to produce the talent to do that yeah so is that what upping our game looks like yeah i think so we need to look around the world uh you look at israel that doesn't have natural resources but has got world-class technology companies uh taiwan is another one lives in the shadow of China doesn't have any resources, but they've got world-class uh, uh, value added uh, uh, in, in that country. And here, look, I've said this so many times that it, it sounds boring even to me, but we live in a comfortable pew. We're hewers of wood, jars of water. It's easy to get by. And we get comfortable getting by. And sometimes that is the enemy of, of, of trying, to, trying to aim higher. And... I, I would like to stay higher. It's not to depreciate the terrific uh, efforts of a lot of people, but um, I think when we look around our region particularly, we know that we could aim higher and do better. And uh, I would like to exhort us to higher levels of, uh, of effort to do that. All right. Well, thanks very much for your time, Mr. McKenna. I really appreciate it. Always nice to have somebody listen to me. All right. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Tim. You've been listening to Huddle Home Office. Thank you very much, Frank McKenna, for that great conversation, and we look forward to catching up with you again sometime soon. Huddle Home Office is produced by me, Mark Legere, Sharice Letson, and Tyler McLean. And you can subscribe to Home Office and listen to this episode and past episodes on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Now, we'll be taking the next two weeks off and returning after the holiday weekend because I'm now on vacation. I'm actually recording this from my cottage in Browns Flat on the St. John River. Have a great uh, holiday weekend. Talk to you soon.